0: You are now listening to the MS podcast by Sanofi Genzyme. In this podcast, the brain takes center stage when Ule Petteriella, best selling author and professional speaker, explores the different dimensions of MS and brain health through conversations with international specialists within neuroscience, psychology, and physical activity. Our brains keep growing until we are in our very late teens and then very slowly start to shrink. This process is called brain volume loss, and it happens to everyone, and it's part of normal aging. But the damage caused by MS makes this process happen at a much faster rate. It's a known fact that the brain atrophies. The gradual loss of brain volume, it's present in people with MS and one of the most destructive consequences of the disease. Monitoring brain atrophy, however, may help to identify patients with disease progression who are at risk of permanent disability. In this episode of the MS podcast, I have the pleasure of having Professor Robert Sevodanov with me, who will help us take a closer look at brain atrophy and other brain measures in explaining physical disability in MS. He is the director of the Buffalo Neuroimaging Analysis Center in the U.S., and has established this center as a world leader in performing quantitative MRI analysis in neurodegenerative disorders. Welcome, Robert. Thank you for joining us today. Happy to be there with you today. Let's start with the first question. Can you elaborate a little bit on how monitoring brain atrophy rates may help to identify patients with disease progression who are at an increased risk of accumulating permanent disability in MS?
1: Thank you for that question. It's uh, uh, really important to understand that, uh, as uh, you mentioned, uh, the brain volume loss in MS patients is uh, age-accelerated compared to healthy controls from very early stages of the disease and from very young age. At the group level, there are clear patterns of brain volume loss over time that can be used actually to distinguish between uh, healthy controls and MS patients. Healthy individuals—that's important to understand—show an individualized annualized whole brain volume loss of about 0.2% between the years 30 to 50, and then that accelerates gradually to an annualized decline of about 0.5% between years <clears throat> 0.3 to 0.5% between the years 50 to 80. In order to interpret the loss in MS patients, there have been a number of different attempts to establish the pathological cutoffs for age-related brain volume loss. A cutoff rate in general of 0.4% has been uh, proposed as uh, specific for MS. So if you have, that's a group level, that's not an individualized level, and clearly it's depending on the age group that MS patient is it. That cutoff, it's very important to maybe repeat that one more time because when we talk about some other argument and technical issues in assessing brain volume measurement in the clinical routine, error due to the changes in protocol acquisition sequences is much higher than this pathological cutoff of 0.4% per year. Different more specific brain region measures have uh, therefore been employed as proxy of brain volume loss. For example, one extremely interesting is lateral ventricular volume. That's uh, a measure that's uh, healthy people are enlarging about one percent per year and MS patients about three and a half percent per year. And different cutoffs have been used, for example, for corpus callosum for, thalamus, uh, uh, let's say 0.7%. The point I want to make with this uh, and related to your question is that we need to find at group and individual level, a certain number and say you are above or you are below the threshold and to introduce this threshold in defining no evidence of disease activity. Because as you know, there were for a number of years three proponents of uh, no evidence of disease activity including no relapses no disability progression and no active lesions and still the brain volume even in healthy people is not stable so what's the really healthy and unhealthy loss of brain volume with respect to the age Last thing I will say, respect to your question, is that monitoring atrophy and brain volume rates is very different when you do the clinical trials and when you follow patients in a clinical routine. In a clinical trials, we have been very successful in standardizing acquisition parameters for different centers participating in the trials to the maximum extent possible with no changes of the scanners over the trial, with protocols being locked in, with very few parameters changing that are not affecting brain volume measurements. In clinical routine, on the other hand, this is not possible. Patients do not always go to the same MRI scanner. When they go to a different scanner, they receive different protocols. Imagine even having different machines, different strength fields uh, being applied at every other follow-up exam. So it has been extremely difficult to measure brain atrophy in the clinical routine, and uh, we have really spent at least a decade and a half to try and understand pitfalls. And can this be really done? on individual basis uh, going forward. And I'm still very optimistic that uh, sooner or later, assessment of brain volume loss is going to be part of the FDA approval for disease-modifying treatments in MS and will be an essential parameter for monitoring progression of multiple sclerosis.
0: Many think primarily of the brain as being affected in MS, but we know that the whole (laughs) central nervous system is affected. Uh, As a matter of fact, spinal cord involvement is an important cause of disability in patients with MS. Could you say a little bit about uh, MRI sequencing techniques in uh, detecting spinal cord tissue-specific atrophy?
1: So, so, I would say that spinal cord uh, imaging in MS uh, plays a really significant uh, role in diagnosing and tracking disease progression because the spinal cord is one of the four key areas of the central nervous system that has been uh, embedded into McDonald criteria. Both spinal cord lesions and cord atrophy are believed more uh, relevant to disability than really the white matter lesions in the brain independently of the of the disease phenotype. Particularly axonal loss is contributing to the spinal cord atrophy and the degree it's correlating with disease severity and, and the prognosis. So as you said, with the recent advances uh, in technical improvements in imaging, which was particularly prone to artifacts and other issues in the brain, these uh, technical challenges are not uh, just caused uh, specifically artifacts by respiratory and cardiac motion, but by swallowing and and CSF pulsation. There is a fatty tissue influence, uh, susceptibility, artifacts, tissue interfaces, also mobility of the spinal cord and uh, insufficient signal-to-noise ratio because it's trapped, lack of normative data, image resolution. These are all issues that have been in the last couple of decades really tackled with two improvements. So there are now a number of uh, different techniques uh, that can really better image, especially this happens in this last five to 10 years, spinal cord. So one of them is uh, short tau inversion recovery or, or basically flare uh, of the brain. It has a very good white signal uh, distinction between the tissue and the bones. But it's not good in distinguishing gray and white. So in the last uh, decade, there have been really efforts by different groups to define better techniques to define gray and white matter damage in the spinal cord. And two particular techniques uh, have been developed in that direction. One is double inversion recovery. And the other is uh, a phase sensitive inversion recovery, which is uh, basically an MP-RAGE uh, inversion recovery-based sequence. These sequences have major sensitivity and specificity for detecting lesions in the gray and white matter, have also proven that there are more lesions in the gray matter of the spinal cord than in the white matter on the spinal cord, and have shown that measurement of uh, volume loss in the gray matter of the spinal cord is particularly relevant for development of uh, disability in uh, multiple sclerosis. Also, there have been controversies in what to measure. One of the simplest measure is uh, basically cross-sectional area or CSA at the C2 level which, which ranges between 60 and 100 millimeter squares. If you open the literature Most of the papers that have been published are based on this technique, but there have been efforts to measure the whole cervical or even the whole cervical and lumbar and thoracic volume. These are much sophisticated measures, but also requiring more sophisticated techniques. Uh, Lastly, we and some other groups have been working lately to create proxies Of uh, spinal cord volume measurement by not assessing the spinal cord itself. That's particularly important to say because you know, you would like at every MRI exam, brain MRI exam, to assess also the spinal cord. And that's not possible because you didn't order the spinal cord uh, MRI, right? So with the newest and better scanners, you have these uh, uh, coils that now are also measuring the upper part of the cervical cord, And in particular, one region, medulla oblongata volume, which is medulla oblongata, the volume of the medulla oblongata that's in the brainstem, it's extremely good proxy of the cervical cross-sectional area at C2 level. So we and some other groups have been now incorporating this medulla oblongata volume biomarker into clinical trials and clinical routine of the MS patients to measure progression of a spinal cord atrophy, both at research and routine purpose.
0: I would like to follow a little bit up on that. Using MRI techniques uh, to um, measure or detecting spinal cord tissue specific atrophy, most clinicians, of course, are very familiar with conventional MRI techniques. Could you say a little bit more specific about non-conventional MRI techniques that can be used to depict micro-structural uh, changes in the spinal cord of MS patients?
1: So that, that uh, let me be straightforward immediately. The non-conventional MRI has currently no place in clinical routine and from really the complexity of the issues related to getting these measures, even in the research studies and clinical trials, I do not see will have application in the years uh, to come. Nevertheless, there have been really a number of techniques uh, from relaxometry, uh, magnetization transfer, myelin water fraction, diffusion tensor imaging functional MRI, magnetic resonance spectroscopy that have been applied to the the spinal cord. These techniques, uh, all of them have different microstructural detection capabilities, while MTR and myelin water fraction are more related to measure demyelination and remyelination, diffusion tensor imaging, and uh, uh, spectroscopy or even iron imaging are more related to structural determination of uh, axonal iron and uh, other type and and metabolic type of changes. And the functional MRI is really measuring the signal intensity changes based on uh, neuronal uh, activity. So nowadays you can even do some not task-related functional MRIs in the spinal cord. And these studies, uh, I can't clearly describe you because there have been hundreds of studies with each of these techniques published in the literature, but they definitely contributed to better understanding of the structural and functional damage of the spinal cord. And uh, I would say all of these measures are associated well with spinal cord lesions and spinal cord atrophy. And so if we would be able to assess spinal cord atrophy in the clinical routine or even a proxy of the spinal cord atrophy, I would say that we would be at better stage than we are currently in MS. It is important to say that uh, while the brain is always you know easier to measure disability and especially motor disability comes uh, substantially from the from the spinal cord especially when related to thalamo cortical spinal connection particularly network type of uh, association studies and disconnectivity studies between the brain and spinal cord have been extremely helpful to understand that uh, it's not just the spinal cord or brain damage per se, but it's also the association between these regions that leads to even greater disability of, uh, of multiple sclerosis.
0: Neurodegeneration and brain atrophy are associated with disease progression independent of acute focal inflammation. What is your view about the need to define a simple, accurate, reproducible, and easily obtainable brain volume measure that can be used in clinical practice?
1: So that's, that's a great question and uh, very actually uh, close to my heart. We, my lab has spent, uh, I would say, the last 15 years or 20 years trying to introduce brain atrophy measurements in the clinical routine. I still would say up front that we are not ready for the prime time to do that. Although this has been started by uh, some already FDA and the MEA-approved measurement tools, I think that uh, leads to some confusion and needs uh, more clarity in interpretation. You can do basically this approach in two distinguished ways. The first one is that you establish a protocol on a scanner You keep the protocol standardized, like we do in clinical trials, and uh, you measure in real time uh, several brain volume measurements. And uh, hopefully when there are changes in technical issues, scanner changes, hardware changes, software changes, protocol changes, coil changes, you have a difficulty to reinterpret the data from the previous measurements because they are very prone to these technical factors. There are now a number of FDA approved, MEA approved tools that are doing that in the clinical practice. I think it's a positive step forward. You are using healthy control normalized data to interpret some of uh, the changes without uh, MS normative databases. The second approach, which it will take a long period of time until we are going to be able to bring every MS center doing that. What our experience uh, is more frequent is that how can you bring these measures to the clinical routine in every MS center around the world where you don't control the, the scanner when they do what they do. And we found out that there is one denominator which is unique for everybody independently if you scan a patient in Australia, in India, in Pakistan, Argentina, or North America. And that is presence of a T2 flare scan. Everybody who is doing any diagnostic or monitoring scan for MS is doing T2 flare. So virtually in all studies that we have done, multi-center, multinational, multi-country, 100% of MS patients have T2 flare scan. So while we cannot control the changes of the scanners, protocols, softwares, we have put a lot of effort to define biomarkers on these simple T2 flare scans, robust and accurate biomarkers that reflects different type of pathology, And uh, that's part of our Neurostream approach, neurologic software tool for reliable atrophy measurement and our deep gray matter via artificial intelligence approaches. And maybe I can a little bit later enter more into particular measures that we are obtaining on these T2 flare scans as proxies of different pathologies in the brain. So the approach is unique. Because it needs only one scan, does not need standardized scanning, and we believe that each of these measures is extremely uh, robust to scanner software or protocol
0: changes. Very interesting. So this may have been already your answer, but what do you think are the most relevant MRI tools for most clinicians using assessing and monitoring disease progression? So, so uh, this is exactly connected to the previous question. Yep. Uh, so let's go more
1: into detail. So obviously, if you look at the literature, the whole brain atrophy has been a gold standard. And I'm coming back to this 0.4% pathological cutoff that I mentioned at the beginning of uh, uh, this podcast. The problem is that if you change the scanner, the scanner is going to introduce a 3% error change. So now that's like almost nine years of brain progression, right? In MS patient, just if you change the scanner. So we have been looking, okay, what are the proxies of whole brain atrophy? And one good proxy of the whole brain atrophy is the lateral ventricular volume, which as I said, has a pathological cutoff of 3.5%. And if you change the scanner, is going to only affect 1% uh, lateral ventricular volume change. So now we have a proxy measure that is better than actually change of the scanner. I like that because clearly uh, we want, even with the change of the scanners and uh, hardware, software, to see patients' uh, measurements being related to their clinical status changes. As a matter of fact, we published a number of papers recently showing that uh, lateral ventricular volume is a uh, very robust, accurate, and a reliable marker, even despite the protocol software, hardware, or coil changes. A second marker is uh, salient central lesion volume. When you assess the lesions, which we need to do in a uh, whole brain, when you go to cortical or infratentorial parts of the brain, you have greater difficulty to recognize these lesions if the scans are not super quality and especially if you don't have some uh, specific sequences. So we decided to measure the lesions just two centimeters around the ventricles. Why that? Because 90% of all the lesions in the brain of MS patients are located there. There is a much higher reproducibility to assess and derive lesions in in that part of the brain. And although you are going to miss some cortical and infratentorial lesions, which may be clearly eloquent and important, you are going to have a very good estimation of the disease burden changes over time. Even with that, we found uh, very good results even with the scanner changes. There has been in literature a lot of, uh, and and even in your previous podcasts, talk that thalamic atrophy measurement is a a very relevant biomarker of of gray matter pathology in MS. I completely agree with that. So what we did recently is really create, based on training the tool on a very high-level images, uh, high-resolution-level images, a tool called deep gray or deep gray matter via artificial intelligence. So the thalamic atrophy can be uh, assessed on every T2 flare scans. Imagine now that uh, you can do in one second assessment of thalamic atrophy independent of quality of the protocol. And we just concluded a multi-center study with 30 sites in the United States and 1,000 patients to evaluate in clinical routine the relevance of this uh, biomarker. Finally, I mentioned already the medulla oblongata volume, and I believe that that's assessing a particular pathology of the spinal cord that will be otherwise missed if just looking on the brain. We also, on a flare simple uh, scan, can assess this connection between different networks by a network efficiency tool. And uh, just the presence of where the lesions are in the brain are allowing us to de- determine how these lesions are disrupting the various tracts of the brain between the cortex, a deep gray, and the, and the spinal cord, and what is the efficiency in different networks. Certainly, in addition to that, we are working on a, a, a proxies of cortical atrophy on FLAIR because that's a very relevant measure as well as uh, on those lesions that uh, are disappearing from the brain. Because, you know, when the lesion disappears from the brain, usually it's a positive thing. But uh, a couple of years ago, we have been uh, describing these shrinking lesions that are just a small part of brain atrophy that contribute much more disability than just the total brain volume loss. So in order to identify these shrinking lesions, it will be very important to say, okay, a patient who is moving to progressive stage uh, didn't move because he developed more new lesions, but actually he moved to progressive stage because part of the lesional tissue that was there is not there anymore. And uh, that's happening around the ventricles, but also in the cortical parts of the brain. So my view on your question from, you know, 30,000 feet uh, above ground, is that there are these two fundamental views. One is the better scanners, better protocols, better artificial intelligence tools that are going to produce very accurate results. And the other one is, okay, let's try also to use the advantage of artificial intelligence and uh, other high-level approaches to just go to what's happening in the clinical routine And to try to assess it on group and individual level. And maybe there will come a day when you will on your iPhone, like you are able to put your finger and measure blood pressure, you will be able to just load your JPEG image of your brain and to estimate automatically thalamic volume or, or anything that I'm describing. I see this coming very near in the future.
0: A very interesting perspective. We will round off uh, with uh, some few distinct clinical questions. Um, Robert, do you currently <coughs> assess brain atrophy in your clinical practice? That's part one of the question, and the second part is: What is your view uh, on automated techniques to measure brain volume loss?
1: So, to the first question, we have assessed brain atrophy as part of the clinical routine for many years, and uh, realized that one of the most important issue. In uh, when you give a number to the clinician, is what he or she will do with that number, whether it's cross sectional or longitudinal. You need to have a normative MS databases, not healthy control databases, normative MS databases to better interpret that number, both in prognostic and uh, predictive uh, terms, three, five, 10 years. Let me give you an example. If you are a 30-year-old, your lateral ventricular volume is 20 milliliters, Uh, you have an EDSS of two, and you are a male, what does that mean? When you compare it to another 5, 10, 20,000 patients with MS and who had follow-up for 10 years, how this patient did based on these attributes. So what we are doing now, when we understood that just giving a number will not serve the purpose. We are collecting from many, many parts in the world as many as possible scans and demographic and clinical characteristics we can to train our algorithms based on these numbers and changes over time to better estimate and classify patients' respect to potential risk for progression. Currently, we have more than 10,000 MS patients in our MRI algorithm uh, database that I'm describing and more than 40,000 MRI scans. And probably when we get to 50,000 MS patients and 100 or more thousand MRI scans, our predictivity, correctness and accuracy is going to increase. I particularly see this as an approach which will be extremely relevant, you know, if you have an osteoporosis and you go and do your bone density scan based on the hundreds of thousands of bone density scans uh, that they have, they put you in a Z-score where you belong. And that's where we need to go with these measurements in MS that have to be pretty robust. I don't think that can be done with Uh, one measurement, but one measurement cross-sectional should be good proxy at any point of time where you are going to be 10, 20 years from now, as well as changes over time will be important in a more sophisticated manner, understand how this patient will progress.
0: When you consider disease-modifying treatment for your patient, how important is the slowing brain volume loss part to you? I think it's the most important part. I think
1: that uh, you know there are certainly inherent uh, issues why the FDA is uh, not including uh, brain atrophy as one of the you know four rules for approval of the of the therapies. But I have to say that in the last five years, we have been seeing FDA even moving toward that outcome. This is becoming a real target. And uh, to slow down brain volume loss, I think should be really uh, one of the major things in the treatment of MS. Now, that's again difficult because uh, while uh, disability for you to see a change of EDSS takes many years and relapses and lesions are easy to locate and understand, the change of brain volume is not easy to understand or to determine. So that's why we need these unique global approaches of uh, artificial intelligence, uh, smart algorithms, predictive databases, normative databases that will help us interpret better and raise the red flag uh, earlier.
0: And the final question, Robert, do you discuss the importance of brain volume loss with your patients and if so, how do you approach that? How do you do it?
1: Conveying importance of brain atrophy as a marker of patient's disease state is complex uh, and may trigger a a really negative emotional response in a patient who may already be suffering from a mood disorder, uh, secondary to disease itself. Now, when patients hear the words neurodegeneration and brain atrophy may believe that brain may be shrink to oblivion, right? So we need to be extremely careful how we present this argument about brain atrophy. As a matter of fact, this is such a a beautiful question because, you know, I'm uh, one of the leaders in measurement of brain atrophy for the last 20 years. And uh, we recently, with a group of patients that are actually involved in our research we came to conclusion that we need to understand the patient perspective of how to communicate brain atrophy to patients themselves. And we are actually actively working on a paper about uh, how to communicate uh, with the patient changes in brain volume and uh, have created like 20 30 questions we have no time to go through this but i think that we need to uh, uh, you know explain to patients okay what are symptoms of brain atrophy what does that mean how is affected by aging what are the hormonal connections how is measured do you need to obtain the same scanner you know a list of different questions that we are putting in the appendix uh, 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 with possible answers and uh, uh, really consensus of the patients how they would like to have this patient's answer and handle. But again, I'm saying we need to be careful how we do that because you don't want to create additional emotional response and patients need to understand that uh, really the choice of the DMT, they have to understand That this disease is not just about lesions, but it's about brain volume loss. Also, that to some extent is connected with lesions, but to other extent is very independent from focal inflammation. And that is probably the most important uh, topic to address with them, that there are invisible uh, lesions in the brain that cannot be seen currently on MRI and then can be only indirectly assessed through global or gray matter volume loss.
0: A very important subject, how to communicate these important but sensitive matters to the patients in a good way. So we're really looking forward to reading that paper when it comes out. Like we always do on the podcast, Robert, I would ask you to maybe pick a key takeaway or a couple of key takeaways for the clinicians out there listening summarize of uh, the interesting talk we've had for the last half hour.
1: So, you know, I would uh, uh, finish on a verge of optimism saying that I have been involved for more than 20 years in uh, pioneering measurement of brain atrophy And uh, thought uh, even 20 years ago, this was possible. And I'm very pleased to see that there have been both from industry, uh, independent organization and researchers, as well as clinicians itself, important movements through registry studies, through clinical trials, to clinical routine studies, to incorporate brain volume measurement in the clinical routine. While we are not there yet, and clearly the... North American or uh, European guidelines do not recommend this yet in a a clinical routine. I'm pretty sure that evolution of technology, application of artificial intelligence, merging of the databases, better predictivity are going to allow us to do that in a more reliable, reproducible, and accurate manner on every clinical scan in the next 10 years. uh, And this will become a standard of care.
0: That very optimistic note. Thank you very much, Robert, for sharing your valuable time and all your knowledge with us here at the MS Podcast. Thank you for coming. Glad
1: to be here again today, and thanks for inviting me.
0: Thank you for listening to the MS Podcast by Sanofi Genzyme.